Good Bone Health makes active aging possible. Join us for inspiring conversations from diverse perspectives in osteoporosis from patients, healthcare providers, caregivers, policymakers, researchers, advocates, and innovators. Protect your ability to live your best life. The information and opinions expressed in Bone Talk are not intended to replace the services of trained and qualified health professionals or to be a substitute of medical advice of physicians. You may review the Bone Health and Osteoporosis Foundation's full medical disclaimer at bonehealthandosteoporosis.org. Hi everyone, welcome to Bone Talk. I'm Claire Gill, CEO of the Bone Health and Osteoporosis Foundation. Joining me today is Dr. Stephen Ng. Dr. Ng specializes in endocrinology, diabetes, and metabolism with a special focus on metabolic bone disorders, calcium disorders, and osteoporosis. He practices primarily in Columbus, Ohio, and is affiliated with Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center. Dr. Ng graduated from the NYU School of Medicine and completed his training at Johns Hopkins Hospital and the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. Today, we're looking forward to highlighting Dr. Ng's work with osteoporosis in the Asian American community, especially since May is Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander Heritage Month, which also coincides with Osteoporosis Awareness and Prevention Month. Dr. Ng, thank you so much for joining me today. Delighted to be here, Claire. I'm so glad that you have invited me to participate in this event. Well, we really appreciate it. And you do so much for our organization in both helping us to respond to patient questions and also to train clinical uh, practitioners about osteoporosis. So it's great to have you on Bone Talk to talk a little bit more about your expertise in osteoporosis. And as we said, also about what's happening in the Asian American community. So first, let's start by, you know, again, for anybody who might be new to the podcast, tell us a little bit about what osteoporosis is and how it affects our bone health. Yeah, sure. So osteoporosis is a condition that affects the entire skeleton, not just one bone here or there. The concept is that bones can become weaker and more fragile and therefore more likely to break in the setting of a small amount of force. So typically a fall from a standing height, but it could be a cough or a sneeze or turn of the spine uh, leading to a bone fracture. Unfortunately, these events occur in persons who have osteoporosis. From an operational level, bone density testing with DEXA scans are used to categorize persons into normal bone density or low bone density or osteoporosis bone density. Yeah, thank you for that. So that's important to kind of speak about those different levels, right? Because we have people who reach out to us that are pre-osteoporosis. They have a low bone density or osteopenia, as you said, and sort of wondering about what to do next. And then those who, who have osteoporosis or might be living with the condition for a long time. So, you know, people need to know that, like you said, it's throughout the whole body. The other question we often get, which you may get in your practice too, is, oh, I have a little bit of osteoporosis in my hip. Right? But they don't realize that that means, as you said, that means your osteoporotic throughout doesn't matter. It's not like individual bones might not be have osteoporosis. If you have osteoporosis, it's throughout the whole body. Yeah, I totally agree. The categorization 
on the DEXA scan report is going to be present or be relevant for the entire skeleton, not just one bone or, or another bone. Yeah, and I think it's a confusing. It's a little confusing when you get the DEXA exam because some if you do see the report, because it does talk about your hip and you know your, your forearm where they do the test. And so sometimes people think it's limited to that. So we have to do an ongoing education. It's really good to remind everybody that that's kind of you know how it affects the whole body. So since we're talking about obviously the Osteoporosis Awareness Month, but also what's happening in the American, um, Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander community, also referred to as AANHPI, you know, because it's an easy acronym. But we have 25 million people, more than 25 million people in the United States in these populations. It's also one of the fastest growing communities in the country. So how prevalent is osteoporosis within this community? And what are some of perhaps the contributing factors to that? Yeah, I I just wanted to back up a little bit and talk about uh, this population a bit. It's a bit of alphabet soup. We've certainly moved past the days of calling this group Orientals, which many would consider derogatory. A few decades ago in college, the preferred term to use was Asian American. Many academic institutions in the Midwest where I'm sitting at right now, coined the term APIDA, Asian Pacific Islander Desi American. So this this was a term, APIDA, that called out Pacific Islanders and in, in addition to the Desi Americans, Desi meaning those in the diaspora from the South Asian subcontinent. These were efforts to show greater inclusivity beyond the Asian American term. But the the term that you used just now, Claire, is the federal government's official designation, Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander, A-A-N-H-P-I. Again, alphabet soup. And it's it this is recognizing the NHPI groups, specifically those from Hawaii, Samoa, Chamorro, Tonga, Fiji, etc that total about a million in this country. Now, looking at the U.S. Census data, the country increased between 20, 2000 and 2020, this 20-year span by about 18%. And if you break this down into the racial groups, uh, whites as indicated as a single race or in combination with uh, another race, during this uh, 20-year span, in- increased 8.5%. Mm-hmm. African Americans alone or in combination by 29%. Hispanics, one race or in combination by 76%. And this um, Asian or Asian alone designation by 100%. Wow. So it was 13 million and uh, one generation later, 20 years, now numbers 25, 26 million. The two largest groups come from originally from China and India, both about 4.1 million. And they mirror the the world news. You know, this week, uh, there was this announcement that uh, mid-year, the folks living in India will outnumber those in China. 
And so, yeah, the U.S. Asian American population mirrors that. The main race categories in the U.S. Census are white, black, or African American, American Indian or Alaska Native, Asian Pacific Islander, or quote some other race. Hispanic and Latino origin is asked separately, but within that uh, Asian Pacific Islander designation, there are all these subcategories that's currently in the U.S. Census. And another very important point I want to make is that it's a very heterogeneous group coming from not just one or two countries, we're talking 23 plus countries. And there is a call from the community to, quote, data disaggregate. We're trying to separate out the differences between these groups, very important ones. So, we don't want to think of Asian Americans as the model minority because there are certainly subgroups within this larger group that are doing less well than those at the top. Yeah. Well, that's the way it is for everything. And, you know, I think there's such a call now within, I think, really coming from the population and the communities versus, you know, top down. It's really more bottom up calling for these research into how specific races and how specific ethnicities might be impacted differently within the health system. And so you can't do that, as you said, if you sort of group everyone together, it's very important to make sure that we're aware of all the different groups that are included in some of these buckets that, like you said, are sort of just everyone's kind of arbitrarily thrown in there because it's trying to make the the fewest number of labels that we can within the census type thing. But it's really important that we designate it all because they do have implications on health. I mean, I've seen that obviously it happens in bone as well. And we'll talk about that, but it's very prominent in menopause, which I've said many times is near and dear to my heart, obviously, since I founded the National Menopause Foundation. And it really needs to be a much more prevalent question that's asked within the healthcare system about who are we treating and what are some of their biological issues that might arise from their birthplace, their, their ethnicity. Yeah, I heartily agree. There, there's so much work to do in the osteoporosis space, but uh, many other healthcare spaces around this uh, issue of race and ethnicity and trying to kind of do a deep dive. Not all groups are the same. There are differences within the groups. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit then. I mean, we know that one of the myths about osteoporosis is that it's just an old white woman's disease. And we talk a lot about obviously how that's not true. And men get osteoporosis very much, just they fracture at a lower rate than women, predominantly because of menopause and what that does to the female body and the and the skeleton. But again, within the black community, the Hispanic community and the, the extended Asian community, there are differences as well in what happens to bone health. So can you talk a little bit about what you what you've learned and what you've studied? Sure. Thanks, Claire, for introducing me to Mr. David Kim, who is a former board member of what was formerly National Osteoporosis Foundation, and he's now Executive Director of National Asian Pacific Center on Aging. So they are at a point in their 
life to start looking at a variety of health conditions focusing on Asian Americans. Uh, osteoporosis is just one of them. And to help do that, they have gotten access to NHANES data, the uh, National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey. This is a data set that is powerful because it is representative of the entire U.S. population. You can imagine if you're trying to collect a cohort of uh, people that depending on how it's done, you might collect people of a certain age or a certain group by income or education. But this NHANES is trying to really be representative. So it's getting a sample of the marbles in the bag, if you will, of the entire population. And there are specific time periods within NHANES that have been intentionally oversampled for the Asian American population. 2011 to 2014 is one of those time periods. So we had a chance to look at some of that data. And one of the items we, we looked at was the bone density distributions by different race categories. So for example, looking at the hip and the femoral neck, which is a important part of that uh, hip reading, the bone density average in white non-Hispanic women in the United States in that time period was, I'm going to put out a number, 1.258 grams per centimeter squared. And in the Asian population, it was lower, 1.019. In percent terms, that was 19% less. That's the mean for the entire population. And we looked at rates of osteoporosis, looking at the whites versus Asian Americans, as well as other races. But in the uh, white group, it was 8.4% and Asian Americans 14.5%. So it was greater. We saw rates of osteoporosis in, in the Asian population rise with increasing age. And this is expected. We see this in all other race groups. But by the eighth decade of life, Asian American women uh, show osteoporosis rates up to 59% compared to 26% in the white women. And we, further, women in their ninth decade, the whites showed osteoporosis rates at 31% and Asians at 53%. These rates were actually comparable to, say, Mexican American women, but lower in uh, non Hispanic black women. And to translate that into a public health message, uh, when you add up all of these numbers, it's about a million Asian Americans will have osteoporosis by the bone density criteria. Yeah, it's really, I was looking to, as you were, as you were sharing that at the, the report that we did on the economic burden of osteoporosis, which just looked at the data from the Medicare beneficiaries in only 2016. And as you said, there are very much differences. And interestingly, North American natives suffered fractures at rates 20% higher than the average. 
and you know we we looked at black beneficiaries and again at Asian beneficiaries and again all groups sort of within Medicare in a different level and it's really important that we look that we think about that and as you said in some areas as the as the population is aging overall we're going to see increases within every ethnic group but those with a higher rate or those who are living longer need to be examined differently as well because we don't you know it's sort of new to the medical field that we are treating to 100. I don't know if anyone listening has had those conversations with their care provider, but I remember with my mom when she was, you know, 81 and broke a hip and we were thinking about what to do with her. There was the conversation that we had with her clinicians about the types of testing and the types of treatment that she would need at this age because they treat to 100. That was unheard of decades ago, right? And so now that's the norm, but it's new to the clinical field into, I would imagine, what that population needs. And that for all of us in the bone health industry is really important because osteoporosis is going to be one of the major health crises as we continue to grow this aging population across all demographics. Right. To put a, another personal vignette in here and give give a little background on myself. So I'm second generation Chinese American. My parents are working class immigrants originally from China and then to Hong Kong and then to Canada and finally to New York City and Chinatown, New York, where I spent a lot of time uh, as I was growing up. And I will remember these scenes of elderly women and men. There's hanging out in the park. And I would recognize dowager's humps, yes. you know, the kyphosis, the forward uh, leaning spine orientation. And for some reason, this, this just stuck with me. There's this very famous photo, not from New York, Chinatown, but from Japan of three generations of Asian women. They're walking One's looking at the next person's looking at the next person. And as the young adult daughter is looking at her mom, mom is posture is starting to stoop. And as mom's looking at grandma's posture, it's really stooped. Mm -hmm. You know, this is a scene that just has stuck with me. And I, I bet it is universal in any community, but it has made an impact on me many years later. I originally wanted to, to serve as a primary care doc in New York City, Chinatown, but l realized my language fluency was going to be a barrier. So I thought I'd better do something in, in a specialty where I, I might get a few extra minutes to see patients. But then I eventually gravitated toward bone health and uh, thinking back to these elders in the community with curved spines. And uh, to be sure, many of those had spine fracture. Yeah. Yeah. I think people don't think about that either. I mean, I certainly didn't before coming to the Bone Health and Osteoporosis Foundation. When we see that stoop posture, we just think, oh, those people are older, right? We see it in older people. So that's a normal part of aging. But it is not a normal part of aging. And as you said, it's probably due to spine fractures they had 
that then cause that spine curvature and can lead to a lot of other health problems. So it's really important that as we look at our elders, we do evaluate when we see them shrinking. And I've said, there's a, there's a little bit of shrinkage that happens as we age, but not to the extent that so many people have. And I believe it's, it's a, if it's an inch and a half of height loss, is that right, Dr. Ng, that we have to evaluate for osteoporosis? Yeah, that's the, the standard amount of height loss compared to what you might remember, say, in your 20s mm-hmm. was your young adult height, at which um, it would make sense to specifically look for presence of spine fracture, either with a standard spine x-ray or the use of a DEXA scan, lateral spine view, it goes by the term vertebral fracture assessment. Mm -hmm. But these are ways to specifically ask the question, is some of this height loss due to a a prior fracture, which uh, the patient may or may not be aware of? That's right. You know, and it's it's funny because I think after maybe college, people stop paying attention to their height. You know, we all go by whatever, you know, we lie about what our (laughs) height is on our driver's license or people guess. And it's really important, though, to ask your clinician to include that in an exam. I remember the same thing. My mom did not have kyphosis, although she did have quite a few spine fractures. But she realized too, as a nurse, as a retired nurse, that, oh, a little bit of height loss happens. So when I took of her for a DEXA scan after she had another fall and I was worried about a fracture, I asked them to do a height assessment. And my mother always said she was, she was, she was five seven in her heyday, as they say. And she was five three when they did the height exam. And she turned and looked at me in utter shock. And said, you know, she had no idea because again, she had perfect posture. She was a very proud of her, you know, shoulders back, you know, kind of fully upright. And she was shocked that that was one of the possible things that happened. And as I said to her, it's because of the spine fractures, mom, you know, you, you, that's what's caused the shrinkage. And so sometimes again, until you hear how your height has changed, it sort of makes it a little bit more relevant for people that, oh, wow, bone loss is happening at a rapid rate. Yeah, we, we had a chance to look at, in that NHANES set, at least in a preliminary way, how often these different racial populations showed fracture of the spine based on the look by the DEXA scan. And preliminarily, the rates in older women were actually higher in the Asian Americans versus the uh, non-Hispanic white population. Wow. We've got to do a deeper dive to look at this, but that's been one takeaway from this look so far. That's interesting. And again, how important it is to figure out, again, where are those populations most at risk for fractures where we wouldn't think of, you know, we always think of hip fractures, obviously, as being so serious and stuff. But the vertebral fractures, those spine fractures are actually more common in the United States. So it's really important that we that we do do a deeper dive with that. And I know we've, we're talking with you and, and David Kim, as you mentioned earlier, about possibly helping to, to do some of that research and do that deeper dive because it really will be incredibly valuable and important to find out what's going on a little bit further in this community. 
Can you talk a little bit, um, Dr. Ng, about, so as you, you mentioned, your, your personal background and your interest in this and what led you to it. You do a lot in, the, in your community, in your local community, within this community. Can you talk a little bit about what you've been doing and what the type of activities are and what you're learning? Yeah, I must say for many, many years, I did the academic thing, <laughs> you know, seeing patients, writing papers. But it was during COVID, so not that long ago. You know, we had a whole year following this time of racial reckoning. And then there was this one really important event in Asian American history with the assassinations of uh, Asian Americans uh, in the Atlanta area that really galvanized the community. And it was this uh, watershed moment for myself to reevaluate what, what I will be doing in you know my what i do at work so at this time there's looks at epi, epi looks at the asian american population i made a call to the uh, asian american students uh, medical students and said hey you know it's probably time to write a review article on, on osteoporosis in asian americans and a lot of hands uh, rose, and so I've got a, a little army of med students to help do this work now. We're just getting going. In our part of the country, Columbus, Ohio, the month of May is a focus of uh, Asian American culture at a Columbus Asian festival. An important part of that is a health screening event. So I've been rolling up the sleeves trying to organize this along with many others. Because of COVID, we've not had an in-person health screening for three years. So we're kind of learning, relearning to ride the bike and and do this uh, in a big way. I think that's true for everybody post-COVID. If we are post-COVID, I mean, it's still happening, but, you know, again, we're, we're sort of out of the the terror stage, I feel, and, you know, moving a little bit more to um, dealing with it as an ongoing issue in, in communities and just trying to be aware and safe. So, yeah, like so many parts of the country, yours is just sort of trying to navigate how do we do events and things like that with the COVID in mind, but it's great to have that in within that community. And I, I, you had shared with me before about all of the students that were so interested in this research. And that's really important, you know, again, just getting medical students, one, to pay attention to even know about osteoporosis, right? And then to be, to be able to study it about, you know, the effects on their own community. Hopefully you're inspiring them to do the same work that you are in, you know, making sure that, that, there is representation within the osteoporosis field and that people are interested in, in looking at their own ethnicity and ethnic groups and finding out how are they impacted. But it, it kind of affects, like we said, we know that obviously osteoporosis is across all communities, all genders, everything. You know, it really is a universal, unfortunately, a disease. What are some things, let's talk about the positive stuff. What are some things people can do to improve their bone health, and also then specifically, you know, if they have osteoporosis, what do they need to know about what they can control in their osteoporosis care? Right. Going back to your comment earlier about how we have to think about bone health throughout 
all of life, including living to age 100, the natural progression of bone density over time is a negative one. So we're all slowly losing bone at some point. And unfortunately, that's what happens. On the positive end, there are lifestyle measures that can be helpful as well as, uh, and importantly, medications that can be helpful to prevent that uh, negative decline and actually reverse and um, increase the bone, bone strength. The, there's a whole, we're not focusing this webinar or podcast on medications, but there are pills, there are injections, and in the injection group, there are many different kinds of injections. I'm reminded of, at least from my own background, and I, I can't pretend that this translates across all Asian countries, that there is receptivity to the thought of, of an injection, especially one that's intermittent in East Asian community elders. So that's, that's something to note. With lifestyle, I think back to my childhood again. You know, I'm in Columbus, Ohio right now, but there was a, a Columbus Park located in New York City, Chinatown, where a lot of elders would congregate and hang out together. And uh, lots of memories of uh, Tai Chi as a group activity done outdoors. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, this is building on the community, community strengths to be physically active together. I think about these models of what bone structure looks like and inside this outer shell is this inner meshwork, the sponge-like uh, structure, what we call trabecular bone. And it's the interconnections that make that bone structure strong. And the more interconnections there are, the stronger that bone. Over time, we lose that, then the bone is weaker. But I just wanted to make a, a quick analogy to how this interconnectedness within an Asian American context, it really is a, an idea that would resonate in this community. And I would bet many other groups as well. So there's, there's strengths that can be garnered from these community-based activities. That's really important to note. And that you, and you're right. I think within the U.S., certainly the congregation within different ethnic communities, those ties are stronger. And like you said, there's much more of a community-based. And so getting those activities together and, and doing things as a community in either, you said, the parks or sometimes the churches or the civic centers or wherever people within those different communities go to congregate is really important. Finally, I just took up Tai Chi and I have been doing it at a place here near my house. And um, it really is wonderful. And I would love to suggest that. Obviously, we talk about yoga and Pilates and, and such, but for anyone else looking for something that really helps with building balance and just overall, you know, just a wonderful feeling. I, I think it, it's something any can, anybody can do. Obviously, if I'm doing it, anybody can do it. 
And I really enjoy it. And it's not just physically, but mentally, there's such a benefit to, to doing these activities because you're really concentrating on the movement and, you know, it kind of like a time of Zen, you know, while you're, you're going through it. So I, it's funny if my, if my instructor ever listens to this podcast, he'll be like, you've missed classes, Claire. And I have, but fortunately they're not where, you know, in sequential, I can pick them up and kind of do the postures and learn the next postures as I go along. So. But you're right. And I see that within the, the Asian American community. So many people out doing Tai Chi and you'll see them in parks and you'll see them in all these places. And it's, it's really great. And I think that, again, whatever the activity is, if you can find someone to do it with, then you're more inclined to stick with it. So that's really, really important to say. There are so many things we could talk about <laughs> within this context and what's important for people to know. But obviously, we have a limited time on this podcast. But I just want to ask Dr. Ng before we go, you know, are there resources specifically available to the, you know, the Asian American community or the AANPIA community that you would direct them to? Yeah, I would freely admit I'm not aware of specific language offerings. If you're going to do this sort of work, you have to really tailor it to the various Asian languages. Right. And not just English. I would submit this is an unmet clinical need and one that clinicians such as me and many others, along with BHOF and, and NAPCA, we could all co-create this. I share this uh, calcium calculator tool that is put out by Osteoporosis Canada. And there, there are some items in here, food items that are at root from Asia, mm -hmm. you know, they'll have mm -hmm. things like edamame or uh, mustard greens, certainly uh, tofu, but it's probably missing many, many other food items. And I would submit this is an idea that we could probably put together that meets the needs of the community. That's absolutely yeah. right. Yeah, we're actually working with the International Osteoporosis Foundation on that. Coincidentally, they have a calcium calculator that's obviously meant for worldwide distribution. And those of us in the US who still haven't learned the metric system haven't been able to use that calculator. So they have created one that is now easy for Americans to use, but it'll have all of those native ingredients in it. And I, as you said, I think that's really, really important. And we, you spoke about, again, not having the language capabilities or the, and the opportunities. We spoke several times about NAPCA, the National Asian Pacific Center on Aging. And I'll make sure that we have a link within our notes for this podcast so those listening can make sure that they get the link. But their website actually breaks down into various languages, all within, obviously, the Asian and Pacific Islander areas. And so I think that's really important that people do have information they can get in their own language. But we've translated some of our website to Spanish. I don't know if people know that we have a, a Spanish language website called huesosanos.org. We have not yet got around to translating it to other languages. And it is really important for people to have access 
to their native language, especially for medical information. So as you said, that's a project we need to all continue to work on. Yeah, I totally agree. I look forward to the day when BHOF will create all this great patient-facing materials in Mandarin and Hindi and Tagalog and Korean and Cantonese, et cetera, et cetera. Exactly. That's the goal. Make sure that we reach everyone as they need it. So Dr. Ng, thank you so much for joining me today. We really appreciate all the work you're doing in the field of bone health and osteoporosis. I wish we could find those elders in your park in New York City, Chinatown, so we could thank them for inspiring you to come into this field because you do so much to help all of us in this field. Um, As I mentioned earlier, we'll have links to resources and materials associated with this episode of Bone Talk. And for more information about how you can keep your bones strong and healthy for life, please visit us at bonehealthandosteoporosis.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, please do two things. Subscribe to Bone Talk so you never miss an episode. And please share it with all your family and friends. Dr. Ng, thank you again for being here today. Thanks so much, Claire. Thank you for joining Bone Talk, the Bone Health and Osteoporosis Foundation's podcast that shares information, strategies, and inspiration about good bone health that makes active aging possible. To learn more about bone health, to become involved, and or help fuel BHOF's mission with financial support, visit bonehealthandosteoporosis.org.